Hello, my name is Lauren Consul. I am an attorney with the New York Prosecutors Training Institute, NIPD. I am also one of two traffic safety resource prosecutors in New York State. I'm glad to have John Kwasnowski here, renowned reconstructionist, back with me today for part two of our discussion on pedestrian collisions providing prosecutors with some valuable tips when they are handling these types of cases. Before we get started, John, could you give us some background for those listening that have not worked with you? Well, I'm a physicist by trade, and I taught at Western New England University for 31 years. I was just called by the DA's office in 1985 to look at a state police report and go down and testify about the scientific accuracy. And having done that, I worked for that DA for about 10 years and then started teaching and writing books. And now here I am. I'm retired from the university, and pretty much all I do is travel around the country training and doing seminars for police and prosecutors. And we're very lucky to have you. Thank you, John, for all the training and assistance that you have provided to both prosecutors and law enforcement over the years. As you know, we've had an uptick in pedestrian-involved crashes in recent years, and although we've made some progress recently with reducing those in New York State, they are still more prevalent than we like. So, John, let's start with this question. Is there a methodology for finding vehicle speed where the pedestrian struck the vehicle using the evidence left behind by the pedestrian when they struck the vehicle? Well, I guess this is a sort of a strange answer, Lauren, but if you had asked me that question 25 years ago, I would say yes. But if you asked me that question today, I would say not really. Here's the situation What you're talking about is called a head strike chart. So let me tell you 20 or 25 years ago what people were doing at trainings. A training might involve standing up a pedestrian dummy and hitting it with a car and looking where the head of the dummy struck the car. So as the vehicle strikes the pedestrian, the pedestrian folds onto the front of the car. While that folding action is happening. The car, of course, is continuing forward and drives under the pedestrian. And so at a low speed, the pedestrian just flops onto the hood. The head strikes the hood. At a high speed, by the time the head gets to the vehicle, the vehicle has moved forward a significant amount because of its speed, and the head strikes the upper part of the windshield. Years ago, there used to be at trainings multiple tests and then a little map made of the head struck the hood at this speed, the head struck the bottom of the windshield at this speed, the top of the windshield at this speed, the roof of the vehicle at this speed, and whoever's doing the testing and so forth would produce what's called a head strike chart, which was a view of the vehicle from the top with various zones on the car, and if the head struck in that zone, there would be a range of speeds for that zone. That was very common. IPTM down in Florida published one of those charts. Northwestern published one of those charts. Several authors published those charts. And they were being used, but here was the caveat. The test dummy was what is called the median American male, being the size, the height of the median American male in the last prior census. And for those charts, the height of the dummy was 5 feet 10.7 inches. So if you had a pedestrian 5 feet 10.7 inches tall, geometrically, they fit the model. They fit the chart. The other part of the chart was, of course, that the vehicles that were used were always police vehicles because that's what police had available, an old Crown Vic cruiser. And that has a really long nose called a pontoon nose and a rather square front. 
and vehicles nowadays do not have long noses because of the aerodynamic considerations. They do not have flat, sharp noses because, again, of the aerodynamic considerations. So, in fact, today you would very seldom find a car that fits the head strike chart. That means that if you had an old car and it fit the right shape car for the chart, and you had a pedestrian close to that five feet, 10 or 11 inches tall, maybe it's going to be useful. Even when it was being used, it was always told to be only of use as corroboration. Do not use it to find speed. Well, people would take it training. They would have this chart. They'd see a head strike on a car a year later. Their tendency would be get the head strike chart and read it. Not the right pedestrian height, not the right vehicle size or geometry, but people were doing it. Little by little, people got away from using it. Well, now people don't even talk about head strike charts anymore because almost no vehicles exist anymore that fit the head strike chart. So even if you had a pedestrian the right height, you just don't have the right vehicles anymore. Here's why I think it's important to know about head strike charts. Defense experts may use them because they may give lower speeds than other methods. So you may have a head strike on a vehicle that is in a location on a head strike chart that gives a low speed and becomes the defense opinion. And I saw that in any number of cases. I did a case for Maureen McCormick years ago in Brooklyn where a police officer, off-duty police officer, had struck some pedestrians. The head strike on the windshield was used by the defense expert to indicate a low speed. And in fact, the vehicle was not the right shape at all. And the pedestrians were much too short. And the chart was completely wrong in terms of its use. So I would caution prosecutors to understand what it is, this head strike chart. And I think I have some comment on it in my little red book. I'm pretty sure I have a picture of the chart and some comment on it. But prosecutors particularly, be aware of a defense expert who's using it. And I think this warrants a pretrial motion because this is not anymore a fry type of thing where everybody is generally accepting head strike charts. And I think the Daubert is also a challenge because certainly it is misused or misapplied to current vehicles. So I do think that's an important methodology to know about. I don't think it's reliable. It may work. It may corroborate something now and then. But if it does, I consider it sort of coincidental and not really of much evidentiary value. Now, something we see all too often in many cases are hit-and-run collisions. So if we have a hit-and-run for a pedestrian strike, are there additional things that prosecutors need to be looking out for or considering? Well, I think there are a number of things that the prosecutor can look for and the investigator should be looking for. First of all, let's say there are tire marks at the scene, like a braking pattern of some kind. One of the measurements that should be made, in addition to the length of each of those marks, is the what's called the track width, the distance from the center of the right side tire to the center of the left side tire on the same axle. So let's say you looked at the end of the tire mark patterns. The most visible marks might be the front, right, and left tires. The measurement that should be made, which very often is not made, 
is from the center of one tire mark to the center of the other tire mark, which is called the track width, and that might be matched to the defendant's vehicle by measuring on the defendant's vehicle center of tire to center of tire, and might be confirmed by the specifications for the defendant's vehicle, which usually are published. The track width is usually published. The other thing, and I mentioned this before, is how many treads or ribs are in the tires, so that if there are five ribs in a tire mark, that can be matched to the ribs in the tire on the defendant's vehicle that made the mark. And I think that's important, and a lot of times it's not done. And I think a defense attorney could very easily convince a jury that these are things that could have been done, the officer knows how to do them, and when they're not done, I think that challenges the competence of the investigation. And it may sway a juror to think, well, they don't really know for sure. So in a hit-and-run case, matching the vehicle to the tire marks is certainly very important. And I think anything in the investigation the officer can do should be done. The other thing, of course, is debris on the ground. And so even if there is debris from the impact that doesn't have identifying serial numbers or something like a lens from a lamp, I think the general collection of the debris and holding it as evidence might be very helpful later when the vehicle is found because the debris may be puzzled back to the vehicle. So you could have 15 pieces of various plastic and glass and lens debris and none of it being large enough to actually identify a vehicle. But when you find the vehicle, if you can match one of those pieces of debris, maybe from a side mirror or something or a piece of trim, if you can match one of those pieces of debris to the vehicle, that's huge in terms of matching the crash scene to that vehicle. So I think debris is important, and I think many times police don't collect the debris. It just gets swept off to the side of the road. The other thing is the tires of a vehicle may have a mark on the tires themselves that shows braking. If it's a locked tire braking, those marks are called skid patches. If it's ABS braking, the marks are called speckling and just look like small speckles of white on the tires, which wear off very easily, but I think it's worth looking for. I also suggest that the vehicle damage inside the engine compartment is important to look for because if the damage is strong enough, if the collision was hard enough, the speed was high enough, to actually damage the engine compartment itself, the radiator mount, the radiator, the fan. I think that's really important evidence of how violent the collision was. And the other thing I think from the vehicle that should be looked at is whether or not the infotainment center in the new vehicles in the dash has GPS information in it. Many of these new vehicles have essentially a supercomputer right in the dash and it has all the time, distance, velocity data for the car in its GPS system. It may have other data in the car that talks about how many times the vehicle stopped in the last day, how many times the doors were closed, how many times the seat belts were latched. There may be things in the infotainment center. So I think it's important for prosecutors to at least ask the officers, did we get any information from the infotainment center? There's a company called Burla. B-E-R-L-A, 
that provides the download equipment for downloading or getting information from the infotainment center, and police agencies are starting to become more and more aware of it. So that's something you know that they should definitely be looking for. And then I think they should be looking at video evidence that would identify the vehicle ID. Thank you. And yes, and speaking of the Burla uh, information that can be gained from the infotainment center, I do know anecdotally that there have been prosecutors' offices who have also been able to obtain information from those infotainment centers from the driver's phone as well, if it was synced at the time to the infotainment center. So that can be another great source of information center, again, if it is available. Well, let let me suggest this too, because as you mentioned that, Lauren, something popped into my mind. I remember the last time I taught at NIPTI, I mentioned this case down in North Carolina where the pedestrian was wearing one of these fit watches. Yes. And the officer was able to download the watch and get information about the pedestrian's path, the location off the traveled lane, the point of impact, the final rest position, and and lots and lots of information about the pedestrian's motion from a GPS watch. So I'd suggest that looking for a fit watch uh, for people that were sitting in the defendant's vehicle, the defendant and others, because if they have a fit watch that's recording velocity or recording position and time, they are essentially recording the motion of that vehicle. And so fit watches are, are another good source of information about how that vehicle was behaving or performing prior to the impact. Thank you. So how does a reconstructionist determine whether or not a pedestrian collision was in fact avoidable? Well, this is a a process that involves those calculations that I mentioned called time and distance. And so the general methodology is, first, when did the pedestrian present a danger. So the driver is driving down the road, the pedestrian is in view. When did the pedestrian first present a danger? That becomes the starting point for avoiding. The next consideration is what did the pedestrian do? How much time did it take for them to get to the point where they were hit? Now, if the person is walking in the road, the time consideration to get to the point of impact is not really important because they're still in the same essential location. They've just moved forward a little in the same direction as the vehicle. But in a case where someone's crossing the road, the second consideration would be how much time did it take for them to get to the point where they got hit? The third is let's back the car up. If we know the car speed, let's back the car up. And now the fourth consideration, going forward, can that operator at that position, when the pedestrian presents a danger, if the operator is sober, if the operator is traveling at the posted speed, can that operator avoid the collision? So the start of avoidance for a reconstruction is the start of the pedestrians being in danger, the start of can it be avoided is here's the car, there's the pedestrian, here's how many feet it is between them. Can the operator do something? And I'd suggest that doing something would most probably be braking, although it could be what is called turn away. 
turn away or swerve because it would not be uncommon for a pedestrian walking in the roadway to have been walking in the roadway for minutes or many minutes and have been passed by other vehicles so that other vehicles didn't slam their brakes on. There aren't a lot of skid marks on the road. Other vehicles just turned away and moved over to the left a little and passed them. And this happened last year in Buffalo when I was working on a case for the sheriff up there because we were out at night doing a visibility study where a pedestrian was struck off the, on the shoulder, off the roadway, and while we were going down the road to turn around and come back and do the test, several cars passed the pedestrian on the shoulder and moved over to the left to avoid him. So when we came back to do the visibility test, the officer said, boy, you should have been here, John. In fact, while you were going down the road to do the test, three other cars moved over to the left and passed the pedestrian which is evidence that they obviously saw the pedestrian and had plenty of time to move over and avoid. And I thought, gosh, that's even better evidence than our test itself, because these are people that were not involved in any test, didn't know anything was going on. They just naturally moved over to the left. So that can be good evidence. Was there traffic on that road? Had other traffic passed that pedestrian? And I, I think that's important because you could do something as very simple, Lauren, as put an ad in the newspaper. There's been a terrible crash at this location on this date. Did any of you experience this pedestrian? And let's say you got an operator who said, I was on that road. I passed that pedestrian with a blue shirt on, and I just moved over. I could see him. This becomes a home run piece of evidence because now it's a, a third party that has no bias at all saying, I saw the pedestrian and avoided so how do you determine whether it's avoidable? By a long series of calculations that involves human factors, or maybe it's by somebody who gives eyewitness testimony that it's avoidable. But I wouldn't pass up that possibility of an eyewitness. I think they could be very, very powerful. And if it's a traveled road, like walking back to a university along the road and everybody walks in the road, I think you might have a, a good chance of finding somebody who passed the person on that night and could see them. So I just keep that in mind. It's very hard to reconstruct. Is it avoidable or not, unless you have all the information? Yes, John, that makes a lot of sense. And certainly, too, I think that you could either corroborate or even find some of these witnesses that you're talking about who may have been able to avoid the pedestrian using the Internet. But also looking at some of the surveillance video we spoke about, if it's available, we may be able to find them there or corroborate the fact that they were, in fact, passing by in close proximity when the collision occurred. So we talked before about when a pedestrian is struck from behind while they're walking along the road, that the walking speed is generally not very helpful. What would be helpful and what other special considerations are there when the pedestrian is struck in that manner? Well, if you can picture driving down a road and seeing a pedestrian walking in the road, the distance that you can first see them, and I mean see them clearly, not just see a little flicker of light from one of the shoes that has a reflector on the back of it. I'm talking about seeing the pedestrian. You're looking at something, you're saying that's a pedestrian in the roadway. That first distance where you can completely recognize this is a pedestrian is called the line of sight, the first point where you can see something. And I think 
it also is what's called the point of first possible perception. And those two things are not always the same. In a case where you're driving down the road and you see a pedestrian walking in the road, when you first see them, that is the point of first perception because the point of first perception defines where you first can know there's a danger. And if you see somebody in the travel lane, there's a danger. So I would say the one consideration in a walking in the same direction as traffic, getting struck from behind, is to do some kind of visibility test where you reenact the scene, you put a pedestrian in the roadway, similar clothing, and you determine what is the distance at which I can see the pedestrian in the roadway. Because for that situation, struck from behind type situation, when you see them, you know you have to do something or you will hit them. You either have to move to the left or apply your brakes. So the line of sight distance becomes the same as the point of first possible perception of a danger. So I'd say that the important thing is how far away were you when you could see the pedestrian? Thank you, that is helpful. And I think that you are correct. There are a lot of factors here and I think that there are a lot of things to consider. So given everything that we have discussed, how do you ultimately determine avoidability? Well, and we mentioned some of these things earlier. I think the walking speed now comes into play because of course, at some point, they're in a position of being in safety. They're on the shoulder, they're on the curb, and yet they do get struck. And that means they are crossing in a certain amount of time from a place of safety to a place of danger. So I think it's important that you determine two things. What was the walking speed or range of walking speeds for that pedestrian? And the other, of course, is what is the path of the pedestrian? So. I was just on the phone this morning with an officer from Connecticut and a pedestrian case. The pedestrian was dropped off by a bus, a community bus that does the senior citizen circuit, and drops people off at various locations. They dropped this gentleman off, the bus pulled away, and then subsequently this pedestrian gets hit crossing the street. They don't know where he was crossing the street. They don't know whether he was walking in a direct pattern across the street, perpendicular to the street? Was he walking diagonally to get to the sidewalk in front of his home? So they have an uncertainty about the path of the pedestrian. And I advise them they have to use both paths and do two separate calculations because they can't testify one way or the other what was the exact path. So in addition to walking speed, the path of the pedestrian, of course, is important because that determines the distance the pedestrian traveled before they were struck. The other consideration is, when does the driver realize that the pedestrian is in danger? So if you saw someone, if you were driving down the street and you saw someone standing off the side of the road, off the shoulder, up against the curb, and you had eight feet of shoulder and then the lane of travel you're in, so that pedestrian had to go eight feet before they could get to the fog line. I don't know in your mind, Lauren, why you would feel at a distance of 200 feet as though you had to do anything at that point because the pedestrian at that point is not in danger and they're not moving. So as you approach them, what's going to happen is they may start to move. That's when I think there's a perception by you this person may be in danger. I have to do something about this. 
you become alerted all of a sudden that there may be a problem. This is one of the difficulties in reconstructing the avoidability. When is the pedestrian really presenting danger? So I think the reconstructionist has to, in his or her mind, look at that situation and say, if the pedestrian were at this position, this many feet from the fog line, this many inches from the fog line, and moving, would that warrant that the driver should know there's something about to happen here? I might have to do something. And that's a hard decision to make, but I think it has to be made conservatively. I think the benefit has to be given to the operator because I know I've passed people that were standing next to the road. I had no indication that they were going to step into the road. They weren't moving. And so I approached them alerted, looking that they may do something, but I've passed them many, 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 many times. They didn't do anything. So I think that's a hard part of the reconstruction. And I think what the reconstruction has to do is to be fair to the operator. I think many pedestrians are careless in the way they cross streets. They don't look, they don't be attentive to oncoming traffic, they are paying attention to their cell phones, but at some point they do present a danger, and I think then it is the responsibility of the operator to respond to that danger. I hope that was helpful. It's one of those sort of gray areas where the reconstructionist has to be looking at the overall scenario, the the picture that he or she has generated in their mind of how it's happening. Thank you. That is helpful. And I think that you are correct. There are a lot of factors here and there are a lot of things to consider. So given everything that we have discussed, how do you ultimately uh, determine avoidability? Okay. Well, avoidability is two factors. What the vehicle is doing, how far it's moving while your brain is reacting to the stimulus. So let's say I am driving down the street and I do see a person crossing and they are in danger. From the point where I first sense they're in danger, called the point of first possible perception, my brain has to see them and then recognize what it is that I'm seeing. Are they moving? Are they going to continue to move? Will they get to the point where I'm going to be? and then make a decision about what to do. And that decision might be to slow, it might be to turn away, it might be to break hard, it might be to turn behind them, whatever. So see them, recognize what it is you're seeing, make a decision about what to do. Is the left-hand lane clear? Can I go to the left to avoid them? Is there oncoming traffic? And then finally, the time it takes for a nerve impulse to get from your brain to either your hand to make a stirring maneuver or to your legs to make a braking maneuver. That entire time is called the perception reaction time. When I first started doing this, I didn't know about perception reaction time and I read literature that said the perception reaction time is three quarters of a second for perception and three quarters of a second for reaction. And I very naively thought everybody reacts in 1.5 seconds and that just is not the case. And it only took maybe a few weeks of looking in the literature to find out that there are wide ranges of perception reaction times. And the number one and a half that people were using was really sort of a benchmark number that people used. So I would say the first part of this process is how far did the vehicle go while the operator was reacting? 
And that involves typically, as a starting point, what's called the 90th percentile time. And that typically is one and a half seconds in the literature. So one and a half seconds gives 90% of the population enough time to react. That's a starting point. I think you should never see a report where one and a half is the only number used. That's a good starting point to get a result in a calculation, but then the reconstruction should go back and have a range around that number so that if you have a single number in your report, the cross-examination is as simple as, we're not all the same, are we, officer? And then things start going downhill. So I'd suggest that prosecutors with regard to perception reaction time should always be looking at a range of values, the same as with walking speeds, and I mentioned that before. Because you always have to ask yourself as a prosecutor, and you're looking at these numbers, how could I know that? How could he know that? How could she know that? So if you see a number, the report says, using a generally accepted reaction time of 1.5 seconds, you as a prosecutor have to say, how do I know that the pedestrian victim in this case experienced an operator who did that in this case? How do I know that in this case? How do I know that the operator did that? And most times you'll come to the conclusion, I don't know. And then you'll say, where's the range? So that's one consideration. And then after the process of reacting is done and the vehicle has moved forward at full speed during that process, then the action happens. And there are typically two calculations, a braking calculation, how far does it take the vehicle to stop once you put the brakes on, or what's called a turn away or swerve, how far does it take for the vehicle to turn away a certain distance? So if you would have to turn away four feet to miss the pedestrian, there's a way to calculate at a given speed, how far forward does my car go before I have been able to move it four feet to the left? So one calculation is called a braking distance. The other is called a swerve or turn away distance. And if you add those together, you get what's called the total avoidance distance. So it is a common calculation that recons do. Any reconstructionist that's passed advanced investigation level, any preliminary reconstruction training will know how to do this avoidance calculation. John, thank you so much for all of that helpful information. It is always a pleasure to speak with you. And I think you've given us all a lot to think about. I really appreciate it. I think these crashes are some of the most difficult, as we've talked about, to deal with. And I think this is going to be really helpful for prosecutors. So thank you very much. I'm very glad to be helpful, Lauren. See you pretty soon. Thank you. 